guys, welcome to Team of Warriors podcast. This is um, part of our season one that we've been recording. Uh, and today we have the privilege of having with us a very select group of men. This episode is going to focus on uh, naval commandos uh, from different countries. With me today, okay, uh, first of all, I have Daniel, my friend and colleague. How are you, Daniel? Good evening. I'm good. I've doing? got sitting with me in Israel, um, Rico, okay, and he's um, an Israeli Navy SEAL from Shayette 13, okay, a veteran of uh, five years. Yep, five years. Of uh, active service in the unit. And uh, with me from uh, far away lands via uh, Skype, I have Jeff Reeves. He's a friend and colleague uh, from Gorok. And Jeff uh, served in the SEAL Team 10, uh, retired from the Navy after a parachute uh, accident. Today, he's a tactical trainer, an actor, a driver of fast and elegant cars. And, well, he's just an overall really handsome guy. Uh, Dennis uh, is another friend who I've met uh, through Gorok as well. And he's the founder and uh, leader of uh, Milrock in Sweden. He also served in the Naval Commando of Sweden. And uh, Dennis is um, Kusia Gal Galna, is that the right name? Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, I know my, Swe my Swedish is getting better. Uh, so how about we hear from each and every one of you. Let's start with Dennis, okay? Introduce yourself uh, briefly and, um, and then we'll move on to Jeff and uh, Eric. Alright, uh, my name is Dennis and I met uh, Bernardo in Jerusalem uh, through the Agora community. I was there on my day job where, where I do, uh, I work as a security uh, advisor for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, Department of State. And uh, I was visiting our consulate and embassy in Israel and <laughs> took the time off to uh, chat with uh, Bernardo. Uh, my connection with GORUG essentially is I'm a GRT. I've done a uh, few events during the time I was living in America. When I got back to Sweden, I realized we needed something like that uh, over here. Over here, here. Uh, so I uh, made contact with uh, Jason Picardi and, and uh, you know, started out my own branch of it. Um, we'll see what happens. It's going pretty okay, we're doing events next weekend. Uh, it's looking solid, man, it's looking solid. I'm working on it, working on it. I'm a marketer, CEO, cadre, you know, cleaner, uh, <laughs> coffee maker, uh, you know. <laughs> the grind. Everything in that company. Yeah, the grind. <clears throat> um, military, very short. Uh, back in my time, it used to be uh, mandatory. The, you know, the, the big Russian bear, pretty close by, so uh, all men, essentially, uh, or at least 25 to 30 percent, uh, did their conscription. At that time, you could join uh, ranger units, uh, just from your civilian background. You just applied for selection, and, you know, if you were lucky and prepared 
yourself enough, you've got selected and, and uh, it did the course. Today it's a way longer process. For the, you know, the kids who want to join, they have to be a, become a Marine, they have to serve as a Marine for at least a year or in the Army. Dennis, we're, we're going to get into the details. We're going to get into the details of how to join in a bit. I went ahead of myself. So, yeah, I stayed in the military for 10 years. Um, uh, two years, naval commandos or marine rangers, and later uh, transitioned to the army for eight years. Cool. Um, all right, great. Um, Eric, let's uh, hear from you. Alright, uh, Eric, I moved to Israel in 2007 from the United States. I uh, joined the Israeli Navy SEALs in 2009, served there for five years. Um, got out in 2014 and then went on to study finance and business management. I'm currently working at an investment firm here in Tel Aviv, along with some entrepreneurial projects on the side of uh, my day job. Awesome. Uh, you're also a trainer at the Team of Warriors, by the way. Yep. A veteran one now. A veteran one. He's uh, built some uh, future warriors here in this country. Just uh, a few. That's a good thing. Jeff, your turn, my man. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. Uh, first of all, I was, uh, as you stated, I was a unit uh, after graduate college, became a Navy SEAL, went through Buds Class 235. Uh, that was it. Uh, and I entered into the Navy in 2000, ended up getting out uh, after serving with the, uh, after becoming a plank order and standing up SEAL Team 10, ended up going to the United States Navy Parachute Team, was OSC for that. Uh, during my time in, as you stated, I uh, ended up crushing my heels uh, on the, the skydive went great, is the landing that didn't go so great. Jesus. And uh, pretty much had to work, pretty much had to learn how to walk again after that. But uh, because of that, I ended up, couldn't do the, uh, couldn't live up to what I, you know, do all the things that seals do, like pretty much not run very much anymore because of it, because of all like plates and metal and all of my feet, and whatnot. However, um, and I'm getting that, and you know, trying to find the next career, I ended up going up to uh, LA, and I've always had an interest in movies, so I got into actually the, the front side of the camera with movies. Started acting, been in everything from um, commercials, TV shows, daytime, nighttime TV, major motion picture. Uh, um, movies such as like Transformers was my first one, um, then us independent films, whatnot. I just got done doing a movie actually with Bruce Willis and Michael Chiklis, which was really cool. Wow. During that time, during that time I didn't want to uh, just, you know, go to auditions and stuff like that, so I wanted to do something more. And I actually uh, worked at the same time to make some income. I was actually working as a brand liaison for some different car companies. Jaguar Land Rover, Cadillac, Ford, and I got tired of talking about them. I wanted to race them. So I went to several different high performance driving schools. I actually got my race license, found a sponsorship, and then next thing you know, I uh, had the op fortunate opportunity to race in two different professional series here in the United States. One being the Grand Am Continental Tire Series with Nissan, and then the Pro World Challenge Series with Chevrolet. And that wow. was fantastic. Um, through that, also during that time, not wanting to just be known for quarter uh, auditions and whatnot, I started my own company, which ended up being a patriotic action sports company. So we had academy teams, wearing suits, we jumped to do events around the country, had the race car that we were having fun with, and also bringing awareness, giving back to military charities, uh, while selling clothing online. Since that time, I've actually merged the company with another one, and now we have um, a pretty cool revolutionary uh, fabric, textile, that 
rates higher as protection than anything out there on the market right now, better than Kevlar, better than that email. Wow. And we've got the third party testing to prove it. So now we are uh, have the manufacturing set up and all that. And if you look online at shadowworksgroup.com, uh, you can see it's fantastic, lightweight, and anyway. That's shadowworks.com? Shadowworksgroup.com. Uh, you can actually come down a fast rope, 30 foot fast rope with a lightweight, 60 foot fast rope with a midweight, come down to a regular weapon and engage, and not have to shake off the big, heavy. Uh, that we used to wear. And it's got, it's like the highest for laceration, abrasion, stab, puncture, uh, fiery target. It's pretty cool. Wow. So get, we're getting that up and running. That, that sounds awesome, man. Thanks. Uh, Sorry. And the high performance driving stuff. I don't, I ever, don't really uh, race much anymore. I haven't been on a green in two years. But now I am a high performance driver for Aston Martin in North America. So I'm very lucky to get to race a lot of track with uh, showing off the cars to new potential buyers. Some of those elegant and beautiful cars in the world. That's awesome. Awesome. And I teach shooting for Gurak. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's uh, how we met, consequently. We taught a course together in Seattle, which was a pretty cool place. Yeah, we took the ferry. It was also kind of a... It was a cool experience. Oh, romantic. <laughs> what did you say, Ryan? It sounds romantic. It was romantic, except... Uh, it wasn't the right timing, you know, I've been, uh, I've been single for a while. <laughs> Anyways. Uh, Just to be clear, we were, we were in the hall of each other's hands. We had beers in our hand when we were going on the ferry. <laughs> exactly. Uh, well, first of all, thank you guys for being here again. I want to say thanks for taking out of uh, your busy days and your times to being on this podcast. As you know, uh, Team of War is a non-for-profit uh, charity. And our dedication is to helping people become better people, better warriors. And so that's why we're here. Um, how about we, you know, you give each one of, our, of you give uh, some words about uh, your unit, uh, you know, and how you get into the unit and a little bit about the pipeline, you know, the training process. We're not going to talk yet about the operational uh, life, more about the first part of it, how did you come about with the idea of joining this unit, what it is, uh, what it takes to get there as a recruitment pipeline and the training pipeline to become an operator. All right, so uh, let's begin with, um, with Dennis. Since this is a naval podcast, I'll uh, talk about the, the Cristiaga, the Marine Coastal Rangers. Uh, it's not really the Navy, even though the Navy, it's or the Marine sort somewhat under the Navy, so I guess it's the Navy in, in a way. Um, you know, the Navy is what Navy does, right? I mean, the end of the day, <laughs> you're getting wet and you're miserable. Jeff there, he, 
unit was actually formed after two officers went to the scenes of that time were called the underwater demolition team, the UDT. So they did the UDT training, they got the UDT guidance, and they came back to the foreign marine rangers. And uh, accidentally, our insignia is also a trident, golden trident. And they also took some inspirations. I think they did a command course in England, uh, Great Britain, and so we inherited the Blue Beret from the Brits. And it's rather for Americans. And it's a flight unit, unit 81 assault uh, or commander part of one farming section. Farming section was um, from the beginning, you know, doing old school farming stuff like sinking ships in harbor. And then, but morphed over the years into a uh, special reconnaissance unit, essentially. While the assault or commando part of the unit has been uh, leaping between combat missions or direct action missions and, and reconnaissance missions over the time. And currently the unit is, uh, is the Marines uh, uh, Special Reconnaissance Unit. It's very short. Uh, Selection-wise, it changed over the years. Nowadays, the, you have to become a Marine. It takes about a year. You can also go to the Army or even the Air Force and then apply for selection for the Marine Coastal Rangers. And uh, if you pass selection, which is about uh, an hour ago, last time we had 70 guys trying out and they got 50. And, and uh, out of them, and they were well selected already because Marines, uh, it's a pretty tough training as well. Right, but then is your before in order to get into the selection, you need to have served a certain amount of years. Yeah, at least one year. Uh, um, most of the guys have have a, have a couple of years of uh, uh, service. Okay, and uh, out of those, how long is the selection? A week, you said. The selection is. Uh, I think it's the assessment is three days, and then you go for selection, which is essentially uh, five or six weeks. Yeah. I think it was longer back in my time, it was around seven or eight. Wow. Basically, the whole basic training was selection. Yeah. So, it's a course. People, people, the cutoff was the first weeks, essentially. Hmm. And if you pass from week four, you probably got to pass it, right? So, 15 people finished that selection process, and and how many of that of those 15 actually went on to become active uh, operators? Well, hopefully all of them, because uh, uh, when it comes down to back in the days when uh, when I applied, about 2,000 applied, 800 got called for selection, and they. And about or even less, four grades are in selection, and you know less than 50 was trained. Today the numbers are super small, as 15 as I mentioned. So maybe uh, they have 200 applies, 70 go to set about 70 to 100 go to selection, and 10 to 20 is the uh, start the training. Out of them, maybe 15 make it through because you know once you. Past selection, they really want to keep you. 
Trident, is it um, like a metal pin that you get or a patch? I see from pictures that it's, uh, it's just a trident. It looks really cool, the symbol of the unit. Yeah, yeah it's, uh, it's, a, it's a metal pin that you wear on your, uh, your, uh, your blue uniform, so to speak. So uh, when you're off, you do uh, your students, you know, there's a pants and dress kind of uniform. Uh, on your company, you have a patch. Mm -hmm. patch. Okay, cool. Um, any, what can you tell me from your perspective about the training? What kind of uh, stories? Do you have a good story from your training? What was the hardest part for you? Um, you know, I guess, what did you learn from it? Jeff, do 
like to tell us a little bit about uh, your unit and the selection and training that you went through? Sure. Um, I'm sure everybody has a pretty good idea of who the U.S. Navy SEALs are. I mean, you know, library, I'm sure you can have a book. But uh, U.S. Navy SEALs was founded in 1962 in the United States with President Kennedy uh, heading for sort of wars of the future for really large tents and conflicts on the uh, on a foreign soil. And then one of the small units to even go in before the warfare you would get out of it. So that's uh that was the genesis of the SEALs and like uh, he said, uh, it all comes from the underwater demolition teams, which comes after the naval combat demolition units, which then goes through the Scouts and Raiders, all of that pre-World War One, but it all comes from the OSS for the United States, which you mentioned became the CIA. Um training has actually evolved over time, it used to be that it was an East Coast um, training area and a West Coast training area. And it makes this more recent, but actually, I say recent in the last 30, 35 years, mm -hmm. I moved over to the West Coast in Cornell, California. Okay. It's uh, to be able to even try out for the United States Navy SEAL teams, you have to be in the United States Navy. So if you, you can't promote from the Marines, the Air Force, the Army, but you actually have to get out of that branch of service and then join the Navy and then go to the Navy. Two different kinds of ways to do it. If you are the enlisted route, then obviously you go to boot camp, which is a great links, uh, great links, uh, or like first, which first was Navy. You have to try out for a device program through, through a combination of uh, physical tests, written tests, etc. And if you pass, then all it is is the opportunity to try out. Mm -hmm. If you want to do it for the officer side of you, then you can have the opportunity to come through through OCS, Wazi programs, or the Naval Academy itself. All very highly selective, very uh, competitive in numbers to get um, a few slots. Not everybody is selected. There's only a certain amount of openings per year, and so obviously the top candidates get those, get those uh, appointments. For example, the year that I, um, I applied, I don't know how I got into the answer, there's only eight available slots and 250 people applied for wow. those 13 slots that particular year. Wow, that's um, pretty good. So let's see. Yeah, I, was, I think my family got put on the wrong pile and they're saying I'm going So once you're actually accepted into the program, uh, you have to be that you are that at that time you are in the baby. Now, during the time that I joined, as if you were enlisted, you would have what's called an A school, meaning you do something else on Navy. You're either a foreign infant, a person's mate, a star attack, something other than being a SEAL. You had to go through that school first, go out its first deployment, and then have the ability with good recommendations to track for the program. Um, now, they actually have a SEAL operator, uh, MLX, so, or, or rating, so that you can actually go right from boot camp straight into boot bars. They have your opportunity at it, and that is then your A school. As an officer, you just go right from OCS right there, then and still today. Once you get there, um, it's actually four phases that you go through in order to complete the training. This, uh, they say it's been, let's just say it's between six and eight months. The actual, uh, what they call first phase, second phase, and third phase is about six months. When you include fourth phase, which is the first phase you go through, it's kind of like PTRR. Gets you ready for the whole shit roll you're about to embark on. Hmm. And it ends up being about um, eight months in total, if you do it as fast as possible. Wow. During, during that 
it's broken up into different 86 weeks uh, training blocks and in that time obviously you uh, you are doing what people know as healthy, people know pool comp, land navigation, and also the combination of it all. You are obviously get very skilled at uh, teamwork, physical fitness, land warfare, weapons training, uh, basic unit tactics, uh, open and closed circuit scuba diving, um, some medical background, uh, before you actually graduate. When you graduate, uh, but that's, that's all that is. is you've graduated, but it's like that's going to be trial. That just means you pass what's said to be one of the most physical challenging uh, things uh, or programs in the United States military. So, wait, uh, Jeff, about that. A lot of people obviously uh, have heard about Hell Week and BOTS because it's really it's really out there and it is considered obviously one of the hardest training uh, courses in the world. Um, yeah. Hell Week is basically a part of BOTS and it is it is the week where most people um, drop out, right? Typically, yes. Typically, for example, we had 165 people have the potential to graduate with my class. Mm -hmm. um, they got a whole, whole duration of training. At the end, 29 of us were left, 21 originals that had started with it. Wow. Now, as we talk about how we, yes, it is within the first month of the first phase actually starting, in the week, it varies. Wow. I mean, it's just, you know, just at the train cycle. Yeah. And for that, you are actually, you start with physical and mental rigorous activity on Sunday night. You do not sleep or go to bed or pretty much get left alone until Saturday. Hmm. Saturday afternoon. Wow. That sounds so it's, fun. It's, uh, it's definitely gives you a new perspective on things. So how long do you have... Uh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no. Pushes you mentally and physically, not to break you, but to show you what you actually can do. Yeah, and it's it's you know it's interesting because during real world operations, you always revert back to the training that you went through in buds, and it's all I'll say almost real world operating. It seems uh, you know yes, it, it's it's legit. But at the same time, you know you, you, you say to yourself, you know, I made it through Hellwig, I made it through buds, I can't make it through this because it's that it's that difficult. Jeff, I got I got a quick question regarding the the Hell Week. So during, we have two Hell Weeks over here, and I'll get into that when we go into our training. But uh, we were allotted four hours of sleep a night, but we only actually got anywhere around an hour and a half to two hours. So when you say sure. that there was no sleep on your guys' end, was there you know fifteen minutes where you kind of passed out here, fell asleep there, and then they kept you moving, or was it you were going twenty four seven for that entire week? I think so. That's a good question. But naturally, your body, I, I fell asleep running. I had a 40 pound pack on my back. I'm running down into a six mile run, three miles down to the beach, three miles back. And I see you now I'm standing up to my knees in the water because I actually fell asleep running and just drifted out into the ocean. Sure. So, yeah, your body does kind of shut down or your body wants to get get that sleep. My, um, the caveat that is don't get caught by instructors. They do lay you down for moments of, you know, rap as they say, mm -hmm. when you're so cold because you're constantly wet the whole time. Uh, I mean, I never stopped shaking for that time. Uh, I, I, mean, I never slept. It was just, you're just constantly jackhammering. You're so cold. You're trying to get warm. And like the last thing you, you can do is go to sleep because it's not warm, cuddly, and fuzzy. You're just jackhammering because you're so cold the whole time. You're, you're, you're crawling up on your buddies. 
Um, I you know used to joke that I've been almost as close with dudes in my class as I have been my girlfriend, just because we're trying to share a party. Um, you know, it's just yes, they say that you get periods of rest, but I'll be honest, I I didn't go to bed. Mm. I didn't go to bed during those times. I mean, your body just passes out. Right. right? You, like you're rolling the the IBS, the inflatable small, and you're in the middle of the ocean. Makes you your body's like, I'm done, and you fall over into the wall. Harder, and you guys got to pull you back out because you literally just pass out from exhaustion. Wow, that's pretty cool. Tell me something. Um, I read this book, and this is obviously there's a lot of books about the Navy SEALs. I have to be honest, I haven't read them all. I'm not interested in, in reading them all. But I did read a, a book that I spoke to you about. Uh, it's called By Honor Bound. And it's the story of uh, Tim Norris and, and um, I forgot the name, uh, Thornton. Oh, yeah, the two, the two Congressional Medal Honor winners, yeah. Yes, exactly. Which, yeah. It's an amazing story. I really, it was really inspirational for me. That's Tom Norris and Mike Thornton. Um, yeah. At the time in Vietnam, I understand it. We, they had a different name for it. Apparently, it wasn't Navy Seals. There were some like Mag V socks or something like that. Can you explain to me what that is? Uh, no, I don't know what you're talking. I don't. I don't know that one. And Vietnam is well. Pre previous, as I said, previously to these Seals, it would have a special unit. I mean, from some, I don't know because it wasn't UDTs. Up until that point, the UDTs operated in the beaches in Normandy in World War II before um, D-Day occurred, and then the UDTs were prevalent all the way through to the mid-80s, I think it was like 84 or 85, when they actually decommissioned the last team, and they're like, okay, you're all SEAL teams. So since 1962 until the mid-80s, there was congruent UDTs and SEALs. Right. Uh, Vietnam SEALs is kind of the other ones, I will say, that gave us the, the lineage and the history of, of who we are. I mean, then they operated the wrong side specials on the Mekong Delta, all the areas in which other units didn't want to operate in. And mm -hmm. that's, you know, we operated really by our own rules almost, just because of the um, special warfare aspect of it. But to that specific unit that those two were in that we refer of, I have not heard of that one. So oh, I can't speak okay, apparently. I got it. I, I, I guess I didn't explain it well. I think they were talking about a thing that's called MACV SOG, which is apparently like a task force that was created in Vietnam and included, amongst other warriors, uh, people from the U.S. Navy SEALs. So I guess that's what I was oh, talking okay. about. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So then they were then from the SEALs brought in to help round that round out. Sure. Um, I have a question for you guys, Dennis and Jeff. Did you guys train for basically before you joined? Did you prepare physically and mentally for uh, you know the challenges that were coming, Dennis? Hell yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, hell yes. Um, <laughs> I, I believe it was my first real golden golden life. Uh, I heard about the. I wasn't really interested in military at all as a kid. So when I was 15, uh, they aired a documentary, the first documentary, you know, uh, from the unit. People have basically not heard about it up until that documentary. This was back in 1991 or something. I think they, did, they aired it in 1993, but it's from the class of 91. And it's called the Blue Disrupt or Vice, which means 
means blood, sweat, and, and, and shit, essentially. That's a great name. It's a great name. There's a, there, there's a background story, too. But, uh, and I, I just realized that that's what, I wanted, that's what I'm going to try to do. Uh, so I just left football, which I was playing at the time, which is soccer over here, Jeff. Soccer, okay, yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> We, want, we wanted to ask. And uh, I went into strength and conditioning. You know, went to a gym, learned about lifting weights, uh, went to a running coach, learned about how to, how, how to crush the 10K, because mm. that was the selection. Like the wow. do 10K in less than 48 minutes it was like the lower lower standard, but that was the standard I needed to surpass. Was that, I was 19 or so. Was that one with weight on or without weight on? No, you start to wrong with weights on first uh, during the training. So mm. it's a selection you don't do it. So yeah. it's, uh, it's just about the capabilities. Well, so 10K run, I haven't uh, heard about that one from other units. I think it's pretty... Uh, other units obviously run distances, but as a selection test, a 10K run right off the bat is uh, it's interesting. Very much into running, especially selections. They are very much running, uh, running and swimming. Um, so um, uh, all the new units have 10k in Sweden. It's the uh, it's the standard. Maybe a little bit different timings on it, but around 48 minutes is pretty much uh, the cutoff. So it needs to be around 44, 45 to to make the cut. That's pretty cool, man. So, did you feel that your training helped you? Did you, th did you feel that um, it helped oh, yeah. you? Of course. I mean, uh, yeah, I wouldn't have a chance if I didn't prepare. Uh, I wouldn't have a chance. Um, so, uh, but I've been thinking a lot about it because today with the CrossFit programs and everything, it's, you know, the way we trained back then wasn't very smart. And, uh, lifting weights, you know, five days a week and running two to three days a week. Swimming one day a week wasn't smart, wasn't a smart program. And today, I mean, they should really raise the standards, to be honest. People know a lot more about right. and they can prepare themselves a lot better. Uh, Everything's available now. At the time, I would do it. Yeah, everything's available. You can, you know, go to do go hard training, no hard training, still fit training. And, uh, Team of Warriors training in Israel, and uh, you know, they should really uh, raise the standards because people come, I, I assume, a lot better prepared. Yeah, probably. Everything is available nowadays, even for example, I found blogs online that describe minute by minute the selection process for, for many units. Like a kid goes over it and he just writes it on a blog. No more secrets. What about you, Jeff? Yeah, sure. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, this is something that when I was a, a young kid, uh, specifically 12 years old, I came across US Navy SEALs, and that was it. That's all I wanted to do. Um, when I, you know, I bought a flag at an air show here in America, and I, I didn't know what it was. It just sounded cool. US Navy SEALs, and I thought it had a cool, cool looking logo. So I went back to my dad, and I did that look what I got. He goes, What is it? Well, I don't know. He goes, well, You better find out. <laughs> so I went to a uh, block. 
um, a couple miles to the local, uh, local bookstore, asked for the history section, or asked for the military section. They said something history. First book I saw that said SEALs that I picked up. I hated reading, hated reading <laughs> as a kid. I read, that, I read that book in two days. Wow. And uh, I was like, I was like, yes, this is exactly what I want to do. It's, you know, they're known as military faces. They're going to be, if you're going to be taken by them, you're never going to be seen again. They're thought to be the, the, the most badass guys in the military. They're, they weren't conforming. They didn't conform to the, like, body square regulations. Uh, they wore jeans in combat. They carried big, cool, kick-ass guns. They all dressed differently. It was very, very uh, personality kind of driven for that. And operation, depending upon your job. Um, and I just, I loved it. And so, um, birthday lists, Christmas lists, all became gear lists. I then switched up the sports I did in, in high school to tailor into something. I always started swimming competitively in my junior in high school. I ended up walking onto my college division one team. I think Kenko, just because I was a bit of an athlete, swam four years for them with that proper division one training and access. I had two weights, nutrition, proper um, um, weight trainers that were also the ones doing the football teams and everything else. Hmm. And fortunately, the guy that I worked with was actually a former Army Ranger. So when he found out what I wanted to do, he goes, great, swim team, you're doing this workout. Great. Jeff, you're doing this workout. Hmm. And uh, he really worked with me in my last year, I'd say, to get me in preparation with it. And I mean, doing some sweet like, stuff that the rest of the swim team was looking at me like I was an idiot for. But uh, yeah, you had to, just because I think it, it it doesn't help in the training. Yes, it does because it conditions your body, but more importantly, I think, it also helps the mental aspect. For example, when I have to go do a five-mile ocean right. swim, mm-hmm. I mean, how many, how many people have actually done that? So now also you get like the, the fear of, holy cow, I don't know if I'll be able to do that because I've never You have more confidence. in the ocean before. Exactly. Then I'm like, okay, I swim five miles in the pool. I know I can swim five miles, now I just got to do it in the ocean. Great. Or with you, you know, at that point, Time, I never want to have a marathon, never run a marathon. So when we had to do the 14 mile time to run, I'm like, oh, okay, no problem. Just got to link all of the runs we used to do on our land program together, and I know I can do this, no problem. So, you know, I don't get it physically now, it's just with the seal element attached to it. Now, that's not to say that I breeze through bugs, don't misunderstand me. You could be one of the best athletes in the world. And, I mean, for example, U.S. Olympians have, have tried a portion of training and they've quit. Because they're like, nope, forget it. So it's just more than physical attributes to get you. Of course. There is a big part of mental to get through. And it's, you know, as we say, once the, the instructors hone in on you and the shots start circling, they'll find ways to push your buttons. But um, yeah, absolutely. Definitely training. Wait, but if you show up, to, if you show up to the program, you're like, okay, I'm here, not train me. Oh, it's going to be a comedy hour for everybody else. <laughs> you're going to be ruined. Really yeah. Uh, Tell me something, are you familiar with the movie Under Siege 2? <laughs> Under Siege 2? <laughs> no. Well, Under, I mean, I think I saw it once on a home, but Under Siege? Yeah. With Steven Seagal as Casey Ryback, a former U.S. Navy SEAL. Yeah. Did he Sorry. in any way motivate you to join the Navy SEAL, Jeff? <laughs> 100% absolutely no, not at all. <laughs> no, I will say, you know what movie did though? And I'm not gonna like it's like the only thing out there at the time. Yeah. The movie with Charlie Sheen, Michael Bean, Rick Rossovich, U.S. Navy Seals. Probably wow. still one of like, and that's actually a decent movie. Classic a decent movie. But yeah, I watched that thing relentlessly. 
It's so good. It's so good. It's still good today. <laughs> I like um, it, yeah. G.I. Jane, not so much. No, uh, that was the only thing I've done. I probably watched that four times in the theater just because I wanted some, some seal stuff to hit me. But, uh, That's funny. Uh, all right, great. So let's move to Eric now. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, Shayette 13 and, you know, the selection, the training. Yeah, all right. Let's get into it. So, uh, Shaita 13 was founded in 1949 by Yochai uh, Benun. It was part of the Paliyam, which was a branch of the uh, uh, Palmach, which turned into the uh, Gamal and then into the IDF. Um, it only became public in the early 1950s after some joint training with some units over, overseas. Um, and a very adaptive, aggressive unit, uh, you know, maritime, uh, maritime uh, onshore, Boarding, uh, you know, attack diving, assault, assault boats, you name it, and it's it's kind of able to do everything under one roof. Um, the selection process is rather rigorous. There's two initial screening processes. One is from Yom um, which is the Special Forces Selection Day, and the other one is through the Jewish Battalion um, Diving Course, where individuals receive their first diving star and then you're able if you're able to complete one of those two weeks then you're allowed to go to the to the trial it's now a four and a half five day tryout um, the number is more or less from when I when I tried I was started around 600 60 finished and 40 were actually invited to then begin training um, in my specific class we started 59 individuals and finished 18 um, over the course of a year and eight months, year, yeah, a year and eight months. Um, and the training process is, it, it's changed over the years. Um, nowadays it's six months with the Infantry Battalion NACA, where they do basic and advanced basic training. Then they come to the base in, uh, in Atlit and they start essentially our version of BUDS. Um, it's called the Machim, and it's um, advanced basic training for the unit. Uh, that goes on for another three to four months. That's where we have some of the highest dropouts. Um, then from that stage it goes into, nowadays it goes into a generalized class where everyone learns assault diving, small boats, um, parachute school, counterterrorism school. Uh, basically checks up all the, the boxes for, for the basics uh, for each warrior. And then, depending on their strong skill sets, they're divided into either divers, raiders, or assault boats. Um, and then they spend another eight, nine, ten months uh, specializing in that specific uh, position. Um, yeah, that's that's mainly it about the the selection process and the pipeline. I myself got there after. Um, some serious time in the United States talking to recruiters about going to the U.S. Navy SEALs. I was very close to signing with them. I grew up as a very American kid, uh, you know, in love with the military, in love with uh, the Navy SEALs and just the, the idea of it. But um, my Zionist roots and, and, you know, strong Jewish background drew me over here. And um, my brother was here for 10 years as well, and uh, when I moved here, I asked him what's the best unit to go to, and he said, there's only one unit that's better than the unit he was in. He was in the <laughs> Golani Long Range Reconnaissance Unit, uh, Sarah Golani. It's funny, that's how, that's how I met you, Eric, because yeah. I was at the time studying um, 
my BA and I met his brother and he was in the Sayeret Golani and I had been by then in the Sayeret Nachal which is like a similar unit in a different battalion. So we spoke and we were friendly with each other and one day, and I'd met Eric somehow through like someone else. One day this guy, uh, Kevin, I, uh, he tells me, oh, I'm going to my little brother's ceremony. He's finishing training in Shaita 13. I'm like, oh, wow, man, congrats. Like, that's awesome. And I'm like, what's your brother's name? It's Eric. He's like, wait, Eric? Like, this Eric? He's like, yeah, that's my brother. I couldn't believe it. It was just, you know, I'd known them both for like a year. They're not the other brothers. They look nothing alike. There's no way, like... We look nothing alike. We, we don't talk much. And, uh, you know, one of the models of the, the Shaita is uh, the people of silence. So, you know, there's not much uh, out there about, uh, you know, the unit or operations that we've done. There's not many books, if any, really written about the unit. Um, but to finish off what I was saying is, so my brother told me that there's only one better unit to go to. And he said, oh, you know, it's like the U.S. Navy SEALs. I said, what do I need to, to prepare for? And he said, you know, continue swimming like you swim, run on the beach with a lot of weight. I guess I was going for rucks before uh, rucking was even around. And um, lo and behold, you know, I, I ended up going through it and finishing it. And, um, you know, we had two hell weeks, uh, although we did get to sleep a couple hours. So I guess it evens out with the one week that the uh, U.S. Navy SEALs had. And, um, yeah. Consequently, also, the age is mostly, for those of you who are listening from abroad, uh, it's a uh, mandatory service. So people basically, at the age of 18, they already get the option to enlist into special forces, which brings up some advantages and some disadvantages. On the one hand, uh, mandatory service and people who volunteer to be in special units, they really have a very high motivation. Uh, you also don't have to pay them because it's mandatory service. <laughs> That's a big <laughs> advantage. And you can hold them on certain uh, you know, conditions that are maybe not so pleasant to someone who's older and uh, is getting paid. You know? uh, the disadvantage is obviously, and all over the Israeli army, is that uh, sometimes specific positions that require a, a lot of experience are, are hard to, to hold in a unit. Like um, knowledge basically um, uh, changes all the time, and you know it takes a, a year and eight months to train a soldier in that unit, and he serves after that approximately two years, two and a half years, usually, right? Well, Sometimes. Well, now yeah. they now they introduced a change into the military where uh, they're offering longer <coughs> uh, enlistment services with uh, a guarantee of studies as well. Um, so there is that kind of transition from a you know conscript army into a more professional army in regards to the elite units in the IDF. Um, you know, you did touch on a very uh, good point that you know a lot of these individuals they are very young and you know kind of brash, but you know it means malleable minds and they can form exactly how they want. But you know it's not a professional army when compared to the U.S. and uh, you know you have individuals that are you know in their thirties that have been doing this. Um, you know, there's there's that saying, beware of, a man, of an old man in the industry where young men die. Um, so, you know, it's kind of uh, very different in that regards. You spoke to me once about how you trained to get into the unit. Yep. And you told me some cool stories about you and the rock and the water and your brother and like some, you know, karate kid kind of shit. So tell us about it. Um, 
Well, I think it starts with my childhood, honestly. I, I joke with my dad about it often. Uh, he was a collegiate swimmer back in his day, and uh, you know, he dragged me to swim with him on my weekends. I swam year-round as a kid, and you know, I always had swimming as uh, as my you know main strong point. And uh, he would take me to, for trips around the world where we'd go hiking for you know two three weeks with uh, you know heavy weight, and it was raining and miserable, and it wasn't really a vacation. It was more of a you know a forced march with my dad. But you know, I loved it regardless. And then uh, coming here, it was, you know, there weren't things like Team of Warriors available to me. I was a bit too, um, too early for that. But, um, you know, my brother and, and friends, they all had the experience in the military. So they basically, you know, told me to fill up two liter water bottles with, uh, with water and then freeze it. So it added a little bit extra weight. I'd put six of those in the backpack and just go run down the beach until I, you know, basically exhausted myself and then I'd go for about an hour swim and then you know pull up some dips and that's basically my life for about a year um, you know I had a strong background in high school of lacrosse and football but you know it's very difficult to like uh, Jeff said to you know take a professional athlete and kind of put him in that situation not that I was a professional athlete at all um, but you know that was my background um, so it was a you know big change in transition into the more um, brute, aggressive, uh, you know, kind of no, no thinking needed in, in order to complete these, uh, these tasks that I set for myself in order to get to where I want to get. That's pretty cool. Um, I wanted to say, uh, Dennis and Jeff, do you guys have any questions maybe, you know, or the three of you, Eric, about each other's units and the training? Yeah, Dennis, I actually have, I have a question. Um, you know, as, as being a Nordic state, um, you know, diving must be, you know, very frigid and, and whatnot. So do you guys also specialize in, uh, you know, uh, your winter winter warfare and how, how does that kind of go into your training as a whole? Because over here was, you know, a lot of tactical diving, assault boats, um, close quarter combat training. Um, you know, that element for you guys is probably just a whole nother kick in the face when it comes to, um, you know, your, your training. Yeah, in the Army we have uh, units uh, which have, have this mission, uh, it's called the Arctic Rangers, or, and uh, they have mountain platoons, and they, they're really highly specialized in this kind of worker. Believe it or not, we have a south part of Sweden, and our sounds ironic, but <clears throat> In the south, in the southern units where the marine rangers belong, we don't really. Uh, uh, we do a lot of winter warfare, of course, because winters also hit Stockholm where the unit is. But it's it's not something we we uh, it's not a speciality of uh, the marine rangers now. Uh, so, okay. Of course. So it's more for the army and army rangers, uh, Arctic rangers. That's there. Speciality, so we do it of course, and you know, can't dive or swim or kayak year around. We have a, a gap of you know about six months. We can do that, maybe more, because you know, all diving, all combat swimming is done in in, in a dry suit. Mm -hmm. I I read about your guys' unit, and I saw that the uh, you know one of the final. Uh Tasks is a is a long open water kayaking uh, test. Now, is that something that comes from the early days of your unit? That it's kind of like a rite of passage type thing. 
Yeah, it is. Hmm. Cool. You're right. So it's a rather bad instrument. It's called the Agamas or the distance. And it's, it's hundreds of miles, right? Two hundred kilometers. Yeah. And it's supposed to, you know, we're supposed to leave Sweden and enter another country in the east. <laughs> I wonder which fight. one. Yeah. <laughs> 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 so we were supposed to go behind in the lines. We left the unit. And from the beginning, who was going to go to actually go to uh, to meet the enemy where the enemy are. And those were the parachute rangers who were supposed to, of course, parachute in and do reconnaissance. And it was the Marine Coast Rangers who was going to sink the ships of the harbor before they left the harbor, essentially. Uh, you know, to in, in the early, early phase of the war. That, that's, that's a pretty daunting task, uh, you know, thinking about it. You know, when I, when I look at our enemies, obviously, you know, I have respect for them, just like I have respect for, for anyone that deserves it. Um, you know, you're talking about an immense military, uh, you know, with capabilities that would be, you know, kind of daunting to try and even dent what they're able to do. So was it something that you guys planned for, you know, overwhelming shock and off style attacks or just, you know, get in, get out, blows up after you've left? I mean, how is it that you guys really plan to take on such a massive uh, enemy? There was no getting out. Uh -huh. That was the thing. So there was no plan B. Uh, the whole the whole military system of Sweden was uh, is based on the first wave is the air force. They meeting then we uh, early mm -hmm. uh, with the combat fighters. We used to have the first the biggest air force in the world, which is crazy because we're a small, small country of you know ten million. Wow. And <laughs> the second wave was the navy, and the navy was supposed to meet uh, the enemy halfway on the Baltic Sea and then came the Marines and the third wave so this is defense with death mm -hmm. that's the, the that was the strategy there was the name of the strategy the strategy uh, after the Marines where the Marine Coast Rangers are fighting the outer archipelago and islands Gotland and Ireland and also obviously in Russia and the army was mobilizing during this whole time and the main Main weapon of the army was the tanks. So one million, we had used to have, including National Guard, about one million men strong. Uh, uh, conscript army today, it's a, <laughs> it's a joke. I don't know. It's just you know, twenty-five thousand or something like that. Hmm. But back, back when we we had a serious threat of invasion, we had a huge army mobilizing just. Yeah, and we, we essentially we sacrificed the Air Force, the Navy, and the Marines. Oh. For uh, so, yeah, it was a, we were trained for a suicide mission, and we we sort of knew it. But I joined in 1999. Actually, I did selection in 1999. Started training in 2000, so we didn't think much about it. We didn't believe in a war. We and so. So we, we did, did, did training and we were hoping to go to Kosovo or later Afghanistan, you know, this kind of new warfare. Mm. That was what happened. Cool. Uh, um, so, I mean, be, before we get into the whole deployment and, you know, where, you know, what the different tasks were, because I, I think there's quite distinct tasks between the three different units. Um, a common theme that all of you mentioned was complete misinformation and 
complete silence on what the units do and everything with regards to that uh, before you joined. Uh, you know, you mentioned that there was only one movie out, uh, you know, that there, there was only certain books and, and things like that. So I guess my question is, nowadays, uh, especially in the last two, three years, you know, we, I can just think of the top of my head, three different Navy SEAL movies, uh, Hollywood movies. I, I can think of, uh, you know, ev everyone knows the other podcasts and the other famous, uh, you know, authors of books now, Navy SEALs. Um, you know, there's even in Israel recently, uh, you know, the, you have sort of the Shaitit people speaking out, uh, you know, for or against politicians. So what, I guess, what are you guys' views now on, on this, like, uncovering of, uh, of what's going on and, uh, and sort of bringing it all to light? Volunteers? <laughs> I guess that's a question for Jeff, right? Oh man, I'm so <laughs> um, just just really loving it. <laughs> honestly, to be honest with you, I hate it. Yeah, I absolutely hate it. Um, one of the things that I liked about when I joined the SEAL teams is you didn't know who a SEAL was. I mean, nobody had really ever heard of the term, and it was just a, it was a foreign thing. And you know, one thing I disliked about, you know, I appreciate what the American Marines do. Those guys are hard as nails. They're, you know, I could not be one of those because well, for different reasons, but um, it's just, and that was like, for example, like, they were going to tell you that they were a, a, a U.S. Marine before they are going to tell you their name. And I'm just like, whoa, dude, calm down. Where it seems like the U.S. Navy SEALs are more chill, relaxed, they blend it in, they disappear, they're more chameleon-like. I thought that was so cool. And, uh, yeah, it's like, you know, we used to have a thing called the Sound Professional. Well, that went out the window pretty <laughs> quick. Um, I don't, I think, I think there is a need for some books, some movies, because, you know, it is history in a sense. But, for example, like when I talk about uh, me going and getting a book in the 1990s, it was about missions that happened during Vietnam. Now, there hadn't been a huge conflict of that scale in a long time. Yes, there's a Korean conflict. There were some other little conflicts that happened around the world, but there wasn't any big type war. So, for example, if you ask me about um, uh, the Bin Laden movie, Zero Dark Thirty, I don't think the movie should have been made. Don't agree with how fast it came out after the actual incident. Hmm. But yet, there's the, the people that are like, oh, you know, they want to monetize after it. I mean, for Disney to try to trademark SEAL Team 6, you're out of your fucking mind. <laughs> I mean, it's like, beat, beat it, fuck off. Um, yeah. For, I don't have a problem with, well, you look at Black Hawk Down. Black Hawk Down movie was 10 years after the incident occurred, and it brought to light the, the 1993 um, debacle that occurred, which, you know, was when highlighted Army Rangers, Delta, SEALs, and all that. But, but I, don't, and I look at Lone Survivor a little bit differently, simply because they're... They didn't really show much of the tactics that occurred, where I thought Zero Dark Thirty did. I mean, if anybody's a warfighter can look at that, that could have turned into a Black Hawk Down mission pretty quickly in one of right. the scenarios that occurred. Hmm. Um, active Valor that came out, whatever. I mean, you know, that, that actually showed some some decent... I pro that probably should have been uh, dumbed down a little bit more than what it was, but... I mean, it wasn't as talking about like 
real world. So I mean, it's just, it just depends. But yeah, it's, it's, um, I'm not a fan of, of all this kind of stuff coming out. And like, I don't, like you can say that I, I, I would argue the fact that I used my Navy SEAL career to get to where I am. I didn't do it for the racing aspect. Uh, the Hollywood aspect just means that I have skill sets that they can use. I didn't know holding, knowing how to hold a gun was so uh, difficult until I actually met people who've never held a gun before. It's very um, difficult in Hollywood. But you'd be surprised. I know. Yeah, um, and you gotta show the fa- you gotta show the face. So you gotta put the gun down by your hip, right? Right. Um, but I, I think I think people should be able to take the skills that they've learned. Like, for example, if you're a communicator in the military, well, then yeah, why can't you take those skills and use those in the outside world for a communications type job? You know what I mean? Or if you're an officer or you're a senior enlisted, you have management expertise, then yeah. But it's not. But you got them off your skill set, not making money off the stories of the other dudes that were really getting with you. So I don't, it's a case by case basis, I think. But I mean, the fact that how Hollywood the media just like want to eat it up and monetize off of it without you know proper due. Yeah, it's like it's own brand. You should get time for it. Yeah, it's you know, which is funny because these same people that monetize. Off of it are the ones that demonize what we do over there, and then they wear around on camouflage as a fashion statement and make money off of our stories. That's you know, Jeff, um, I wanted to say I've been obviously um, invaded by media all of my life. I grew up in Mexico, so I had access to all the American media right off, you know, on my face, and I like it. But I've seen a evolution of Navy SEAL media. Now, yeah. to begin with, uh, every country has something like this. Like, for example, here in Israel, the equivalent of the, you know, the unit that you know writes books and does shows is the Duvdevan unit, which is where Garrett served, and. Um, and in the U.S., then uh, really, there's there's a whole lot of media and influence from that media uh, about the Navy SEALs. Now, what I noticed, which is actually very interesting to me, is that let's say 30 years ago, you know, uh, especially after Vietnam and that, when ops were really black ops, and somehow they were associated part of them, even though it might not there might not be a good reason for it. But there was uh, uh, people kind of questioned ethically the, you know, the value of some of the black ops that were being carried out. I found that many movies portrayed Navy SEALs as as bad people in a way. It was like someone was being uh, uh, chased by Navy SEALs, or Navy SEALs were doing like some black op in some country, you know, like doing something bad. And that was really interesting to me. Then that turned into, um, well, there's, for example, um, there's Bruce Willis was in a movie, by the way, where he was a Navy SEAL and he was somehow, right, he was supposed to rescue someone, but in the other day, they were actually trying to do something bad in that country, if I don't remember correctly, right? But then in the end, they did something. Uh, of course, because, you know, you... It's Hollywood. It's, uh, yeah. But there's a lot of movies where... It was good for the first 20 minutes until he turned the helicopter around and the movie went to shit. <laughs> <laughs> the best part of that movie is him with the black, uh, you know, um, makeup uh, coming out of the water. The, um, then, I mean, it, look, look, look. then it really turned not, into... 
What are you saying? Uh, it's Navy SEALs don't get sent in to build churches and schools. Yeah, of course. I mean, there's obviously something for some for some reason of <clears throat> why we got sent in, and it's not to not to you know make friends talk about a discussion of what we're there. Right. So yes, there is always the side of dare I say free. Dare I say the political uh, that you need good men to do bad things on behalf of the protection of others. Now, yeah, I think that we do operate within a very uh, we operate probably some of the, um, on the morale on more the morale side, but not. But you're asking people to do something that typically 99.9 percent of Americans can't, or or people in general can't. Of course. But yet you want that person who has a, a great moral compass to go execute. You know? But Jeff... You think about like why, for me, what's that? Bear with me for a second because what I'm trying to tell you is that the overall, um, uh, I guess, acceptance of military Exception. after Vietnam seemed to be a little bit negative. Like, population looked at the military in... I would say uh, um, a little bit more negatively back then than they do now. Um, sure, hippie free speech, right. peace, anti-war, yeah. So that turned into movies nowadays or media where you see that the Navy SEALs and particularly SEAL Team 6 are really, you know, the best of the best and, and sometimes even overshadowing other units and other... Uh, services and infantry and things of the sort who are obviously also protecting, uh, uh, you know, Americans. The latest trend, the latest trend though, is the business one, which really came, I guess, from Joko Willing in a way. By the way, I, I love his content and what he does, but I know Joko. He's an intense dude. He's, he's a good guy. Yeah, I, I really like his message. It's really really cool. But nowadays, for example. Uh, there's a lot of business people who unfortunately feel like they can um, you know they can call themselves warriors the same way like a Navy SEAL because they're in the business world because they're comparing business as a, as a war zone because being an entrepreneur is basically in their eyes very similar to being a Navy SEAL um, and uh, and I think this is the latest trend. I, I think so. I think that you know, the term warriors one gets thrown around a lot, probably too, uh, I think too much. I mean, if you look at American football players or the commentators, this guy's a warrior. This guy's a, you know, it's like, no, you're not. You're an entertainer. You're an entertainer. Because in the end, warriors, half of them don't come home, and it's the losing half. So, it's, you know, they, they want to act like the modern-day gladiator. Okay, then really get skewed with a blade. You know, I mean, if it was so... If it was so bad, then we wouldn't hear about TBI and helmet helmet. Of course, if they were, if they wanted to play that, and real warriors don't make that kind of money. As I say, they're and the, entertainers. The whole element of sacrifice is missing there. Hype themselves up. Yeah, I mean, follow the warrior. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it's it's definitely a word that is way overused and not in the way it is meant anymore. It's the way it was meant in history, not anymore. So yeah, there is a business model on that because everyone wants to take the bad out. <laughs> Or as good as the next guy. The truth is that not everybody's created equal. You know, I was contacted by a guy who. There's a lot of guys who basically their business is to tell other businesses what to do. Okay, this is how they make money. Right. And 
even though maybe they don't have a business or you know whatever but this guy read this book about well, it's 30 days with the navy seal or something which i think is with oh, david yeah. goggins and basically right and so basically he just wanted the same thing because you know business navy seals discipline warrior spirit so i think that's a bad direction that uh, media uh, is taking from a navy seal influence and uh, like i said i i really i love joko willing's books and his podcast and i read it and it's really helped out a lot i, I really like what he stands for i think he's legit um i've i've read also no his message is really legit I, I, and it's really helpful. I really look up to him. But for example, I recently read the book of David Goggins, the Can't Hurt Me book. Yep. You familiar with this? And let me be very careful with my words because I very much respect everything he has achieved and I think he's a really tough guy and uh, there's, there's a lot of good messages about his, his, um, his content. But there were other things there that just didn't add up to me. Like, um, uh, you know, basically in his book, he actually says that he didn't make it to SEAL Team 6 because uh, they didn't want any black guys on SEAL Team 6. Or he says that he was in charge of physical training and basically every day was like a hero ward and, and people weren't as stuff as he thought and so they couldn't keep up with it. So I think it sends it well, sends uh, mixed messages. I, I cannot speak to exactly why David Goggins did not make it to SEAL Team Six. I know David. I went through butts training with him. He was in my boat crew. We became very familiar with one another. Um, I do know that SEAL Team Six does have black guys on it. Um, because I, some of them are friends of mine. That's what I thought before. So I'm not, you know, I, I haven't read the book. I don't know the, the, the point of reference in which he's referring from, but that's a, so I don't, can't really speak to that. Well, anyways, it was just uh, drifting away on other themes. But um, Daniel, you have a question about the operational, I, right? I think you're... Sorry, Jeff, well, go ahead. Just kind of just kind of end, just end cap what you're saying. I do think that they're, that, you know, uh, the Navy SEAL, everyone wants to have their token Navy SEAL has one like, oh, to say like, I know a Navy SEAL. I, every time I get introduced as one, somebody always says, oh, I know one, like, yeah, bring me too. You know, we're normal humans as well. Um, <laughs> so it, it, it is a buzzword that people want to have because they think it's cool points, but really it just means, you know, you're not one, so don't try to be like one. Don't try to act like one. I always enjoy catching the people that say they are one, like, oh, well, this is gonna be good. And then embarrassing them in front of all their family and friends. When uh, they can answer some simple questions, and they get called out on it. <laughs> but it's, uh, yeah, I, I hope it comes to uh, its end here soon with the glorification and Hollywoodization of it all. We can get back to business and go do our job because that's the, the the black the black uh, awe of it all. The the um, self not knowing really what we did, who we were. I think we're kind of riding on the coattails of of what the guys in Vietnam and the early SEALs before us did. I mean, if you look in the media right now with Eddie Gallagher getting prosecuted for something just because some kids are having some other SEALs and there's, there's some young SEALs in his, in his unit have an issue with 
how he did business, but yet it was still, you know, legal. Yeah. It's, it's really a shame. I mean, people join because they want the title, not hmm. because they want to do the job. I didn't care about the title. I want the job. Which could be a result of, of the media influence, you know, that you suddenly you get a lot of people who just, like you said, they want to do it for the title, right? You know, it's interesting because we've been put on a pedestal for so long. The fact that all of a sudden in the media now that there's a couple of instances where you got lawyers that are like, oh, this is my opportunity to, you know, take down a seal or embarrass the name or, or make a name for myself because of, you know, everybody puts us on a pedestal and everybody's waiting to knock us off. So they're taking advantage of they're really running with it depending uh, it doesn't matter if it's um truth they'll they'll to make a, a lie out of it and to, to further their career but that's another topic sorry yeah <laughs> okay so i i guess one thing i wanted to ask was i mean we've got three different units here we've got three very different types of deployments i would assume you know with israel essentially being deployed at home uh, you know in our backyard um, you know, I know the seals are going to you know all across the Middle East. Less, you know, I obviously know less about uh, about the the Swedish. Uh, you know, your unit, Dennis. Um, what what is a typical? Obviously, you you spoke about the whole. Uh, you know what the unit was designed for and and what the the enemy was. But what it, what is a deployment there today look like? Uh, today the unit just came back from Bali. Uh, where they were uh, serving out of a, a, a base in uh, Timbuktu. It's a UN mission. So uh, they've been running that mission since 2013, I, I believe. Uh, myself, I haven't been there, not in that capability. I, I've been there in my current job <coughs> during security assessment. Uh, but basically, my whole career was about Afghanistan. That's why. Uh, that's what is that's essentially why I transitioned to the army because the chance of being deployed was a lot, lot greater. It turned out everybody was in the end, everybody was deployed uh, to Afghanistan anyway, right? But because uh, we stayed for a lot longer than we initially thought, we uh, Sweden entered the campaign in 2003, maybe. Uh, I was in military academy at the time, uh, uh, turning into an officer and. And uh, deployed in 2006, and then back again uh, 2009-10 to Afghanistan. That is. Um, so, sorry, what was the question again about deployments in general? Or? Yeah, I mean, I guess we're getting onto that, uh, you know, that stage of of all the questions where you know we're going to talk about what you guys learned from your deployments and the different personal stories that. Uh, you know, really made you who you are today, and you know, uh, we're all a part of the service in general. So, uh, you know, as I said, I guess nowadays they're in Mali. You, you said you were in Afghanistan. You know, if you, uh, I'm sure you were working with with foreign units. What you know, wh what was the the situation there? I guess what was uh, you know, what were you doing on a on a daily basis? What what does a, a day look like? Well. Six-man team. We had two interpreters, and uh, they were locally employed, so they were Afghans, and <clears throat> so eight in total. Uh, we they were doing uh, long-range reconnaissance, uh, which was in a targeting process. It was find, fix, finish, exploit, and analyze. It's uh, an acronym, and we were in basically the find, 
find sometimes finish, not finish but the final fix phase uh, of that targeting process and uh, when it came to finish there were American ODAs around were SEALs in the north at the time there were uh, army units and the uh, operational detachment Alphas who were finalizing the raids after we uh, conducted our reconnaissance and in those you know terms that it went that far. Normally most operations just, just started and ended with uh, finding targets. Uh, we did it in a whole different way than we were trained to at the beginning because uh, working in a huge desert uh, in contrast to an ocean uh, of course has its challenges and there's people everywhere and co-terriers everywhere. So what you do is essentially go around and talk to people Human intelligence is what the military call it. It's called talk to people and uh, you know normal life. And sure, we, we learn some techniques for uh, active listening and interrogation and uh, questioning and to be to just be better collectors on and better at our trade to collect information. And usually our patrols, uh, I wish they're most during winter, so they weren't, uh, weren't crazy long, but most patrols were, I think, an average four days or three nights, three to, three, three to five nights. And uh, wow. yeah, we went to two uh, South African boars. That's a vehicle that looks like a Humvee, sort of. Wait, South African horse? No, humble. <laughs> boar, yeah, as a boar, like a, a wild pig. Oh, okay. The, <laughs> if you look it up, uh, Galt in Swedish. And, you know, Sweden had about 550 troops there, mostly infantry, of course, and uh, we had uh, six reconnaissance patrols and later the special operation group, which is our tier one unit, deployed uh, for a brief time. Just, I think the Last two years of the campaign or so. Cool. Um, Jeff, what does a day in the life of a deployed Navy SEAL look like? understand that teams are scattered basically around the world on on uh, they get uh, basically responsibility for a specific geographical area is that right correct correct so before it was uh, if you wanted to go, go to uh, I mean, before it was the SEAL team was responsible for a particular area, area of operation since then it has we've modified how we deploy now, rather than just one platoon from every team deploying, now we actually have a whole team will pick up and deploy from each coast, and each platoon will then go to a different region of the yeah, region of the world. So we 
lots of benefits to that, and we lose a little bit of, of that. But correct, uh, a platoon will go to the far reaches of the, of the earth and uh, to be there for six months as kind of like the um, area of operations commander, trunk or joker, wild card, if you will, joker. Mm-hmm. So when he needs to employ us, he can and get good results. What, what areas were you deployed to? So, so I was actually deployed uh, towards a part of Europe, which uh, when I was deployed there, I went to 10 different countries, nine or 10 different countries uh, from there. So I really didn't spend time in that country. It was always, if I, I did, I came back uh, to either take care of paperwork or reach out, get new equipment, and then go somewhere else from there. So it's kind of like a full staging area. Mm-hmm. But we were on the hook for um, pirate activity that occurred. We were on the hook for, for um, FGAD drops if we needed to mm-hmm. um, for different things. So, and then we also deployed into uh, different countries to go execute one of our many missions I, said, uh, I talked about earlier. That's pretty cool. So what would the classic mission uh, look like? The, the classic mission? Like a standard, you know, just another day. That's part of what makes it, you know, for some of us, the best job in the world, that it's not a set day, that you're not just every day, you know, clicking One. some numbers in a computer, right? 100%. I would start a shotgun if I had to go to a cubicle every day. <laughs> um, Eric, what can you tell us about uh, your operational time in Israel? Uh, operational time in Israel, wow. Um, so, just to touch on your question about an average day, and I'll get into it, there, there's no such thing as an average day. Um, our, our structure was kind of built on m- monthly mission deployments. Um, and to that tune, I only did one mission inside of Israeli territory for an arrest operation in the West Bank, and that was just at the end of our training, just to kind of say that we did it. Um, you know, everywhere else that I've been, um, you know, close and far, it's either been intelligence gathering, uh, you know, situations where we've been deploying, uh, you know, assets, uh, certain types of, uh, you know, assault platforms. Uh, you know, it's kind of whatever was really necessary to get done is what we did. There was never, you know, we're going to do this for the next couple of weeks, a couple of months. It was, you know, we're going to train a couple of times for this one mission. We're going to go and execute and 
it could be on your way home that you're you know sent back out for a mission that you have you know just a couple hours to prepare for um, but you know there is no such thing as like a far deployment like you would have with with foreign militaries everything is in our in our backyard and uh, you know as, a, as defensive military it's all preemptive uh, in order to, mm. you know, not really let anything happen uh, on our watch, essentially. Right. And I, I also think that, you know, with every military, really, everything is dependent also on the timing, right? Like, for example, in the early 2000s, in the Intifada, Shaita uh, 13 was doing a lot of work, for example, in Gaza or in right. the West Bank that is known of, okay? Well, I think that goes back into our, into our you know, history of being a very flexible unit where it started out, you know, combat diving and sabotage and then it went to more boat platforms. And like you mm -hmm. said, in the second intifada, it was basically all on land. Mm -hmm. I mean, for, those, for those years, there were very few, yeah. um, you know, amphibious incursions or, um, you know, assault craft that were that were actually operational it was all just focused on land and i guess some of the things that i've read and, and learned about from shelter 13 which is also a, you know that's been kind of a standard over the the last few years is interdiction in the sea like uh, stopping yeah. uh, vessels uh, or intercepting a vessel that you know is trying to smuggle weapons. There's been a couple of famous missions of those. Yeah, I mean those are those are the main missions that you're really going to hear about when you when you research our unit, just because uh, you know those are very public uh, interceptions of showing you know uh, you know illegal weapon smuggling into Gaza or um, you know actions that Iran are doing Syria through Turkey. Lebanon, um, you know, it's all it's all stuff that we want the world to see at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's 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 our bread and butter is basically boarding and, and you know, obviously off the back end of intelligence that's gathered by the Israeli apparatuses that are working, um, you know, endlessly on it. It's uh, it's a big part of it as well. well. That's pretty cool. I mean, our objective right in the podcast is really to give a sort of like a, a picture and insight into these three different units for those who are potentially thinking about trying to join units like this and you know those who really want to understand it a little bit more um, so uh, Daniel you had a question that you wanted to ask uh, uh, mine was basically the deployment and uh, you know and how it looks and how the evolution obviously the difference between the units uh, you know two conscription units one professional unit uh, you know, I think the guys with Dennis and Eric were a lot younger than the guys with, uh, you know, with Jeff. And it's interesting how the units uh, are similar. Um, speaking of that, you know, I, I know, I mean, Eric, you can go more into this. I know uh, you guys worked with the Americans or you, you at least at some point trained with them. Um, you know, is that, is that something that you also experienced on, on your side, Jeff? And obviously Dennis also, you know. The training with foreign militaries and the benefits uh, that that brings, and you know the experience itself. Was that to me or to everybody? I guess it's to everyone. Um, since we're all not sitting in the same room, you know, volunteers to start. <laughs> yeah, I, I, we, I trained with uh, several different countries and their special units. It was uh, it was cool to see how other countries 
did stuff. Um, and it was great to work with them on a non, we, we were doing exercises together, so we were in the middle of it when, uh, when I happened to work with a couple of these guys. And I'm glad we had that experience first just because it made it easier when we actually did, uh, if and when we did need go work together, how we would uh, do that. Um, because everybody's got different tactics and you know, when, when language, there's a language barrier, it's not the time to uh, figure out how to play charades when the uh, board's coming back at you. So, um, yeah, it was cool, it was educational, and depending on just learn how to uh, adapt to it and implement each other's best assets when taking out bad guys. Um, Dennis, I have a question for you. Um, yeah, go ahead. Do you have a, a moment during your service uh, that is something that, you know, strongly uh, marked you or, you know, just an experience that you can talk about for our listeners? Uh, sure. Uh, I, I think I have three real highlights from uh, my military career. And uh, one is uh, the whole process of getting the Trident being goal-oriented and sticking to a goal and, you know, achieving, adver you know, facing adversity, overcoming it, uh, growing as a person. This was very formative years also. This was in my early 20s. I was 20 or 21. So it formed me as a person uh, very much. So it's a long process and you can read about it in Wikipedia. You know, the, the steps and the paces you go through to get your trying. Essentially, it's, you know, nowadays it takes forever for the young, young guys, unfortunately. It took a year for me. And and the second thing I would say was probably uh, a reconnaissance course we did in England, which also bridges to your last question, your, your former question about uh, other units. And right. uh, we were there for seven weeks at Ending a course held by SAS and Special Reconnaissance Regiment, and it was a total game changer and eye opener wow. for me in, in terms of reconnaissance. Because the way they do it was, was you know, it's just, hmm. I, I zeroed everything I knew about reconnaissance. I, I was coming from a more uh, a, a fighting force. I mean, uh, we weren't that into reconnaissance uh, by the time we went to England and did a course and I learned it was so good um, but it's it's a different podcast <laughs> to be honest yeah and third is my last year because I was a team leader I think I was on on, on the top of my career I was a young captain and I you know my team came home and I mission well done it was an awesome time it was you know Seven months in, in Afghanistan in the Shulgar Valley. We had a huge area of responsibility, just my team and I. We were totally on, on our own. We had no, really didn't have any backup or quick reaction force. You know, in theory, we had back at the Swedish camp, but uh, uh, we were totally dependent on ourselves and our team. So the, those three things are absolute highlights from. There's so much good I take from the military, but those three things during the 10 years is my absolute uh, best moments. That's, that's pretty cool. Um, uh, Jeff, do you, could you answer the same question? What is um, 
Can you give us some highlights from your service in the SEALs? Uh, Jeff. So, Jeff was called back to <laughs> car shooting with the Navy SEALs. We lost him for a second. But uh, Dennis, let me ask you another question. What would you say is the percentage of um, um, of hand-to-hand -hand and close quarters combat training and basically, you know, uh, um, I guess the time you spend on it during your training and, uh, you know, uh, during your service? Oh, wow. Um, not much, to be honest. We did it uh, once a week, but basically during our whole uh, rearrangement. On Mondays, the first day we came in, we were usually off on uh, weekends. Of course, there were weekends, a lot of weekends actually. We were, we were in service, but a normal week, we always started week with uh, hand time combat. It was actually Krav Maga. Oh, uh, I think we were, yeah, it was. Uh, <clears throat> Swedish instructors and everything, uh, but they were trained by Israelis, and um, so we did it uh, once a week, and uh, I thought it was great. But it was all. Kept it very simple. We kept it with uh, with or without rifle, uh, with or without knife, and hmm. mostly you know doing pushing kicks, doing you know uh, hits to to the throat, to the yeah. Adam's apple, you know, and some ground fighting. That's really interesting. I haven't to me. done much in my career. <laughs> we kept it very simple. I would say that's really interesting to me. First of all, because. Uh, when people look, you know, people who haven't been in the military and they look at the military, the first thing they really imagine is the hand-to-hand -hand combat and the close quarters battle, because that is maybe some of the more sexy stuff about, uh, yeah. you know, a military. Uh, however, what a lot of people don't realize is that units like this have so many responsibilities to to be good at. Like, for example. Yeah. Uh, I don't know, maybe you have to know how to drive a boat or you have to be in charge of some of their surveillance or reconnaissance equipment or maybe you're yeah. a parachuting instructor or a diver. Like all of these things take so much time to train and be good at and a lot of people don't realize that. Uh, by the way, Jeff, are you with us? Jeff is... is He's driving an Aston Martin at the same time <laughs> at high speeds. So sometimes the connection is bad. Sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we can hear you. Good. We can hear you well, man. Uh, we just asked Dennis about some highlights from his service. And I was hoping you could give us, you know, a highlight or two about, you know, things that you remember. Yeah. Um, man, I'd say one of the, the best highlights of my career was um, actually being a plank owner of SEAL Team 10 uh, to actually be one of the first people to be assigned to a new unit and especially one of that caliber. Wow. That is pretty fantastic. It'll be, it'll be forever in history. I think another opportunity was um, to actually meet the President of the United States, uh, George H.W. Bush, in, uh, um, in, the, in the Oval Office in the White House at his, uh, his request. It was pretty awesome. Um, me and my team were able to go in and, and meet him, speak to him 
for an hour, and it really was a, a life memorable moment. That's that awesome. Operational. What's that? I said that's awesome because he's one of my favorite presidents, and he's really funny too. He he really is. And what's funny is that um, I was I came away more upset at the media. Go figure. That uh, for making him to look a certain way than yeah. what he really is. Yeah. And I remember walking away because he talked to us about his mindset, his philosophy, how he approached the presidency, yeah. and how he treated it with respect and not, uh, you know, he, he, he held it in high regard. And yeah. I was like, I'm so happy that guy's my president right now. So it was really cool. Yeah. Um, other than that, I think the opportunity to work with some of the best dudes I've ever met in my life. Uh, the same mindset on, on the various teams that I worked with, but then again, you know, um, history type stuff. Where, where I, at 24 years old, two years after I was doing cake stands in college, I was uh, doing, you know, working with Croatia and helping them earn requirements to join the European Union and NATO, and literally had their whole baby at my disposal. And I'm like, I can't believe I'm doing this right now. That's cool. Hmm. Um, before before the 2000. For Athens Olympics, me and my unit went in, and we were tasked with training um, their special force into Greece. And we were tasked with training their special, their special forces, their police, and their Coast Guard on proper uh, takedowns and VDSS and room clearances, and just being like, you know, this is this is important stuff right now, simply because you know the Olympics are coming up. Obviously, with the threats that were going on in the world, that is going to be on one of the biggest stage, uh, the biggest stage in the world. And so that was that was kind of me, you know. But then, you know, a lot of other stuff I did overseas that uh, I'm very happy about and have the opportunity to do with that you will not see in a book from me as well. Uh, thanks, Joe. By the way, um, a lot of people don't know what is VBSS. Uh, vessel boarding, search and seizure. It's uh, like like um, ship takedown type stuff. There's uh, there's what. Um, the uh, hostile and non-hostile takeovers. It's kind of like um, Captain Phillips kind of stuff, where say pirates come and think a ship, mm. and, or there's nothing pirates. It could be say we need to we need to make our way onto a ship that is underway at night while it's in motion, and so all of a sudden, randomly somehow, a platoon or two of seals will show up. Yeah, in, in various ways. That's really and cool. Next thing you know, we take control of the boat. <laughs> and let me oh. tell you. That is probably one of the coolest things I've ever done. Yeah. To actually do that. That was, yeah, that, that employed all aspects of being a CEO, and that was a fuck yes, this is what I signed up for kind of moment. Right. I had the chance of, of uh, seeing one of these drills by the Shayette 13. It was pretty amazing, too. Um, Eric, tell, give us some highlights about your service in the Shayette. Highlights from, from, from my service, wow. Um, I mean, the best day of my life, and even after getting married, was completing my training. Um, Good answer. Good answer. <laughs> that's without question. Um, but, I mean, I think, I think it's like most guys that, that finish uh, in, in these elite units. It's the skill set that you have afterwards. Um, you know, it's all fun and games until they start, until they start shooting back, right? So... Um, you know, it gives you it gives you a lot of uh, stability in life afterwards when you when you go out into the you know quote unquote real world and no one's trying to kill you back. Um, but highlights, I mean, I guess it's uh, you know like Jeff said, it's the guys that I served with. 
Um, you know, you're talking about some of the, the rare few in the country that get into this elite unit that you spend every day with. Um, and like how Jeff opened up the, uh, the beginning of the podcast talking about how he's been closer with some of those guys than, than probably his, his wife, you said, or girlfriend? Uh, I, I forgot. Girlfriend. Girlfriend. Um, you know, it's, it's, it, it's a brotherhood that, that will never go away, which is, uh, you no. know, a, a nice bit on the back of the head. Not his car, though. Not his car. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the entire the entire experience was something that you know obviously changed and formed formed my life for for the better. Um, you know, I don't think other than those those few things, there was something specific that I could say was you know the, the highlight of. Um, um, I've had the chance of visiting the Shaita Thirteen base many times. I have to say on this podcast, it's my favorite base in the IDF. Without a doubt. Because, you know, obviously, first of all, the location is known, all right? I'm not giving away anything here that is uh, secretive, but I can tell you that the warriors in the unit have a view of the sea in their their living quarters, which is amazing. I just, you know, this is something that you could go to another country and pay $200 a night to get that that view. Without a doubt. And uh, it's really amazing. And I just really like... Uh, the the whole mindset of this unit and uh, you know with that said also I guess uh, all the Navy SEAL units which is the mindset of of mind over a uh, matter of uh, you know mental toughness and basically a really a human being that is able to to fight and master you know the most gruel, grueling uh, weather conditions what does that sound like? Is someone washing their dog or something at the same time? <laughs> Sounds like some, some eggs are being made. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, um, the, point, the, the point that you made is, is very true. You know, after, 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 after he's been, uh, in training and not noticing you know, much around me other than the task at hand, I remember there was a day after I finished training, I was like, shit, this place really is beautiful. Yeah, you know, it never really dawned on me where I where I actually was for a year and eight months until I finished, and I was right. like, "Wow, <laughs> look at this place!" Yeah, it's awesome. Uh, it's funny, when I was done with the uh, the last place I wanted to go was the beach. I would just <laughs> look at the water and just start shaking. <laughs> well, I have that problem with with sand. I, I hate with, I hate when sand is on me now. <laughs> I do, I do. I will go into the <laughs> like the beach? If I have to put a wetsuit on, it better be in like the Bahamas. Yeah, it's so like the beach for me I'm alright with, but like if I get home and I have sand on me, I have like this, I, 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 like, I can't freak out until like my house is clean of it, it's not on me, like this, it can't be on me. I, it's, it's one thing that never goes away. Um, do you guys, uh, Jeff, did you guys have, what is the percentage of hand-to-hand combat CQB that uh, you did as part of your training? Oh man, when I did it, uh, not, now they're doing more, I understand. I, I, what I understand is they're actually switched up the Krav Maga, last I have heard. Um, we did a very brief um, skill set. It was, it was like a, a special system that was made uh, for us, and now it's, it's kind of civilianized, and the gentleman who taught us it is actually teaching. It on his own out of the uh, East Coast, 
but um, there wasn't much to be honest with you. At the time, a lot of guys themselves had their own experience, but uh, nothing. We, 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 you, you can you can get specialized in it within if you had time. But during training and all that, we as you said earlier, we were busy uh, doing. Uh, man, that is annoying. Right. Um, we were uh, we were busy doing, as you said, working with boats, working with vehicles, uh, doing marksmanship, doing uh, CQC work. That we would incorporate that if we could, but we had the basic skill set uh, that we went from there. And a lot of it really in the in the fight was just the size of the dog, or like the, the the mental ability of the dog in the fight, not the size of the dog. Right. I love that one. So, I like that sentence a lot. Um, uh, Eric, about the hand-to-hand -hand combat and CQB, I mean, uh, first of all, I know, uh, well, I had the chance of training uh, a portion of the training of the Navy SEALs in one of my previous um, uh, tasks or assignments in the government. And so I know kind of like where it comes from. Also, a friend of mine is, um, uh, the Krav Maga trainer for the unit, at least until recently. And uh, what, what was your, how much does it take from your uh, training curriculum and, uh, you know, uh, tasks and skills? Um, I mean, that's our, that's, you know, basically our core bread and butter in the first eight months of training. Mm -hmm. um, you know, minimum one training session a week. Sometimes can get up to two, three times a week, um, you know, incorporated with, uh, you know, fighting up to, you know, waist height in the water. Um, you know, that was, that was basically, you know, it was, it was a form of punishment in a way, you know, you, you fuck up enough and they say, okay, well, the whole team goes to Krav Maga. Huh. Um, you know, the beginning stages is more aggression and punishment and then it evolves into more technique, but... I mean, you say technique, but we all know Krav Maga. It's basically just beating the shit out of the person in front of you <laughs> and everyone around them. Um, I love Krav. It's so good. Have you seen that Simpsons episode where there's they come to Israel and there's the girl that does Krav Maga? No. And I haven't seen that. Well, it's it's great episode. The Simpsons come to Jerusalem and you know they really did a good job. And Bart meets a girl and he's eating on her. And she basically beats the crap out of him. She <laughs> kicks him in the nuts. And, and every time she hits him, she says, Crap my God! Crap my God! <laughs> it's really good. It's really good. Um, Dennis, tell me about temperatures. Because I think that you guys are exposed to some crazy temperatures cold. Dennis, you can hear us? Sweetos? He's also driving the Aston Martin? <laughs> He's a mute. No, no. All right, never mind. Um, Wait, that, can yeah, you hear me now? yeah, we can hear you. <laughs> there we go. Dennis, about temperatures. What are the the lowest temperatures that you that you get to work on in uh, your unit? standard that says below this you shouldn't do this and that uh, at least nowadays we had at least one we had one guy actually who died in water uh, due, probably due to temperature 
his heart stopped, and was in December. And uh, essentially, the, the, the guy, uh, the tallest guy, was breaking the ice with his elbows when we were walking into the water. Wow. And uh, yeah, this was a uh, uh, yeah. But. It changed a lot during obstacle courses and stuff like that due to safety regulations after that. So this was a uh, but. So it was a uh, back in the days. It was almost twenty years ago now. It was in December nineteen. Yeah. Ninety nine. And. Should um, time flies. Well, huh? after that, mm -hmm. I think they changed. Switched it up a bit on, on the safety side. Hmm. Uh, speaking about water, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what it do now, but I, I know he died very early in the spring. Probably still some icy waters. Do you guys get to train even when it's winter? Of course. Yeah. Of course. The winter's long here. Uh, winter. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we're talking about you know uh, you know that show the Game of Thrones yeah like the people on the wall that's like that's like Dennis's unit right <laughs> the guys by the wall <laughs> uh, winter's really long here so the winter starts essentially in, I mean first snow in October and last snow in April so it's half of the year and if you go more north you have up, up until midsummer, if you know where that is, that's in the middle of, the, of June, you have a snow on the peaks. So now we, we train year round. Uh, waterborne operations, no. Winter time, not so much. Most of the archipelago freeze. Uh, it's just the outer, the further parts uh, that don't freeze. So we can actually ski on the winter, on the ice. Wow. Uh, you can walk on them too, but it's safer to ski. Pretty cool. And, uh, and do telemark ski? Uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a form of telemark. Uh, that's what we have. Where the heels are are loose, so to speak. The heels are yeah. stuck to, to the ski. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, we go around winter-wise. We have snowshoes at times, but you know, not usually skis. I remember we got issued some cold weather gear. It was like a seven-layer system, and I'm sitting. I actually, I actually put all this stuff onto my living room. I was like, <laughs> like, a, like a snowman. And I was like, if I have to wear all this stuff to to thrive in some area, I don't want to be there to begin with. <laughs> it was legit. Right. Everything takes uh, a lot longer, and everything gets more complicated. But if you get really good at it. And then you come, yeah, become an even better uh, summer soldier, so to speak. Wow. Uh, desert warrior. But um, I, I don't like it. I don't thrive in that environment. And so <laughs> <laughs> I stick to the southern part, to the beaches where we don't have sand, which I'm thankful of. We don't have rocky beaches here. Because um, I hate sand too. I have to spend some time in America. Right. So, uh, speak, speaking of going in the water and uh, sand and whatever, there, there's something I heard about, uh, you know, obviously there's the Israeli share that, that I want to ask Eric. Um, I think it's called Four Minute Speedo. Yeah. Uh, tell us tell us a bit about that. So that, that got phased out a couple years before I got there, but essentially it was uh, a practice where on any point at base, the instructor could look at one of the uh, cadets and basically tell them, you know, wave four fingers at him, 
and they wouldn't even have to speak. It would basically be, you have four minutes to run, change into your Speedo, jump in the water, get back into your uniform, and come back to where you were. And they could spend all day doing this. I mean, if you don't come on time, they basically send you back and forth. But um, that basically evolved into a situation where it was kind of like every every element had uh, had a point of time on it. So, you know, it was seven minutes to get ready for Krav Maga anywhere on base, uh, five minutes to get ready for to go swimming anywhere on base. Uh, you know, everything had, uh, they timed us to prepare for our forced marches. And then, you know, that was our time that we had to stand on and if we didn't stand on time, it could go for 12 hours of us just running back and forth trying to get prepared for this forced march. Um, so the four-minute speedo is, 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 a, is now just a, a legend. Um, Jeff, can you tell me a little bit about PT? Uh, yeah, that's your new way of life in the military. <laughs> when you're trying for the sales, everything you do is PT. Um, and I, I mean that legitimately. Uh, you never walk. It's always a minimum, like a, a, a modified. It's a, you wake up at, you know, morning PT sessions, the panic can vary. You have, you have four o'clock in the morning and you're sitting there ready to go for these instructors to come out and lead PT, which will be two hours. It involves everything from push-ups, sit-ups, dips, uh, rope climbs, and you're not doing it dry, you're constantly wet. Uh, matter of fact, if, like, one of the things you do is, if they don't have the water-filled IBSs up front for everybody to dive into and get wet, then the instructor just tells you to hit the beach. And so you hit the surf, get all sandy and wet, and come back, and <laughs> then we begin. Um, you have constant obstacle courses that you've got to set a certain time on. You've got uh, weekly uh, two-mile time swims. You've got two weekly time four-mile runs. And so in preparation for that, Every day, you're doing some kind of run, swim, uh, physical activity. I will admit, like somebody mentioned earlier, that today, uh, they're more uh, logical or smarter about how they train with all the CrossFit and stuff like that, where before it was just crushing out physical fitness and other reps. Uh, and, you know, it's just that you come in, time to drop, and depending on what phase you're in, it could be 20 up to 50 push-ups at a time. If the whole class isn't in sync with it, then we start over, and that can take several minutes at the instructor's lap. Okay. I mean, I think the most I ever did was like 500 push-ups at one time, uh, 500, what? because we just, we got like right to, we got right to 50, like right close to 50 during third phase. He's like, nope, start over. And, you know, it was not sitting there in a classroom setting with a perfect push-up, like one foot's on a chair, one foot's on the top of a desk, your head's down towards the ground, it's, what he says, drop, you better get your face on the floor and push-up position, whatever that is, as fast as you can, and start knocking them up together as a, as a team. Um, yeah, it's just, it's, everything's, everything's physical, the whole time, it's just physical. Just to go to get food, it's a mile run to the chow hall and a mile back, so <laughs> you've been done it for the day, and already you know but you're running six miles that day. That's pretty miserable. But at least, is the food good? By the way, it's a great question. What's the food like? They actually um, do care what the food is like. And I say that not because you're going to be eating lobster tail and flaming yard every day, but they want to make sure that you're getting enough. And they want to make sure that it actually is decent, not dog food. And the reason why is because they say that you are putting out so much you can literally eat a can of Crisco grease a day and still lose body weight <laughs> uh, because you're burning so many calories right. in your training. 
And I mean, you know, it's decent. I've had better. I've had worse. And if you want perspective, just have an MRE, and that'll make you appreciate Stahl food a bit better. Hmm. Uh, Dennis, how is the food like in the Swedish uh, Naval Commando? He's eating the eggs now. <laughs> Who made the eggs now? <laughs> yeah. So what was the question? About food and PT? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, same answer as Jeff. Uh, PT is uh, running all the time in the beginning, and you're not allowed to walk, and you do push-ups all the time, essentially. And food is great, actually. We eat about initial during slip, actually it's 10,000 calories a day. So, wow. great food, lots of food. <laughs> um, I, I'm asking you this because, uh, Eric, what do you think about the, the food in the Shayetet? It was amazing. It was uh, essentially catered food. Um, you know, in regards to the PT, both, you know, Dennis and, uh, and Jeff hit on it. You know, first four months, you're not allowed to walk anywhere. You're only allowed to go to three places on base, <laughs> four if you're including the uh, shooting range. Um, and food, we had four meals a day, uh, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and a you know late night happy meal. <laughs> <laughs> I the last time I was in your base, the food was disgusting, man. Really? I have to be honest, yeah, it was really bad. Like what uh, was that? <laughs> it was like a year and a half ago or something like that. Yeah. I, we have the we have like the ISS like a catering company. I don't know. Maybe it got shitty. Maybe the the army you know wised up and realized that they don't need to feed us such good food. <laughs> and my day, the food was great. <laughs> That's a good one. Uh, well, guys, I want to move into some of the questions that we got from uh, listeners. Um, the first question was, someone wants to know, how do you deal with blisters properly? Okay, this is really a question I got. Who, anyone wants to volunteer to answer that question? Mind never matter. <laughs> I would say the first thing to do is make sure they're the right size boots. Right. That helps. And then they should have properly broken in, which for us would be as soon as we get a new pair of boots, I would instantly wear them in the shower and then just wear them all day long wet just to make them form to my feet. That's, that, that's really good. Seconds, you'll, be, you'll be in the ocean anyway, so it doesn't matter. That's really good. You know, here in the Israeli army, breaking in the boots, you, you put oil on them and then you have a car go over them a few times and then you wear them. That was the tradition here. A car? <laughs> yeah, pretty rough. A car drive over it or you smash it on the curbside like, uh, you know, for 10-15 minutes to loosen up the leather. <laughs> but that was the old boots. Now they have some really nice stuff. Um, another question is, I guess for Jeff. How do you get into SEAL Team 6? <clears throat> so, after you've done multiple deployments as an actual SEAL. Um, there's, you apply and then um, you get selected to try out for SEAL Team 6. At that time, there's a date in which the class, the new class will start, is given its own name uh, called Green Team, mm. and then uh, it is a rigorous, and I mean rigorous, several months of training in which you are expected to Life of a life of a seal itself is intense. What you're expected out of SEAL Team Six is about five times what you would think like the SEAL life is. And 
there you have to be I mean there's expert and then whatever it is above expert that's what they expect you to be as far as being behind a gun there is no room for error in shooting your muscle discipline your CQC skills have got to be amazing because they do not tolerate uh, that's really what they do you know and uh, you just got to be locked on solid and just crush everything in that and if you screw up a little bit if there's any, any hint of you having weakness you won't make the team cool Eric question for you um, after your training a year and eight months uh, what did you feel, you know, after you got through all of that? What do you feel when you get there? What was the feeling? Obviously, you felt accomplished, but um, I guess these listeners trying to understand, first of all, did you feel it was, uh, you know, worth it? Did you feel you you did better than you thought or, or not as good as you thought you would do? Um, did you feel like, you know, like you... Uh, grew up somehow or were more confident about things uh, what can you tell me about that shortly um i mean yeah i guess the, there was a there's a level of um you know maturity that i felt after completing um you know if i was good enough or felt better it was one of the situations where at a certain point in training you kind of understand that you're not going you're not going anywhere unless they physically kick you out or you break something mm -hmm. um I mean, yeah, I felt accomplished. I, I was ready to work, really. I was ready to, to, to use the, the tools and knowledge that they gave me and go out and do what it is that they taught me to do, um, which that even took you know, several months to do. Of, you know, just because we finished training, the, the, it doesn't mean that it ends. You know, right. Sniper school and then specialty training for, for the Salt Warcraft. And, you know, it, it wasn't right away that I got to start working. But, you um, were a sniper too? Yeah. yeah. Did you have any other tasks? Um, like specific tasks, like I don't know, uh, driving boats or yeah, things like that. The, yeah, for the boats. So I was in the um, special assault boat team, and so I'm a, a chief mechanic. Uh, so you can call me chief if you want. Hilarious <laughs> enough. Um, <laughs> you can. I went to chief school. Just not sport. Um, yeah, so I was like a you know mechanic and uh, electrician for the boats, driver. Um, el jefe, el jefe, el jefe. Yeah. <laughs> Um, by the way, uh, Dennis, did you have any special uh, skills in your team that you went through? Is Dennis uh, he's listening? He's with us, he's on mute. I know you mentioned being a team leader. Um, I'm sure people are interested in the process of you know, getting there. Yeah, that's true. I, was, uh, uh, I started as an ATL, uh, assistant team leader, and uh, left as a team leader. Yeah. Oh, cool. Jeff, you were a parachuting trainer, right? Uh, no. So. Or head of the parachuting team. Yeah, eventually, as my my second tour, uh, I was the officer in charge of the Navy parachute demonstration team. Mm -hmm. So, if you're familiar with like the uh, the military jet teams that we have over here, the uh, like for example the Navy Blue Blue Angels, um, who promote military and stuff like that. Uh, we're kind of the same thing, except we just don't fly over. We actually land in and then take everybody's hand and promote uh, Navy Naval Special Warfare. So yeah. after I did my uh, operational tour overseas in the, so the country that I mentioned earlier, then uh, as, to, as an officer, I have to do what's called a disassociated tour, which means I get to learn different realms of the Navy and learn how it all fits together. Wow. And so um, it, was, it was either go to Guam for three years or 
I was like, I want to go to free fall school. So <laughs> I did that. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And, and Guam would have been flying a desk. And as I said earlier, I do not like cubicles. <laughs> Any one of you guys have a funny story that you can share? A funny story? What's the show rated? <laughs> what's the what? He said, what's the show rated? Uh, all it's, it's, it's rated R here. It's rated R. <laughs> <laughs> wow, you guys aren't that funny as, as, as I thought. <laughs> Anyhow, I guess uh, nothing's funny in the Navy, I guess. <laughs> I guess this listener is going to be unhappy. I'll tell you a cool story. I'll tell you a cool story that we did. Um, so, one of the things before we left the deployment, during right, our we, we work off, like our third month, we have to work with other units. And so, my, uh, I took my squad, my eight guys, and I uh, went up to uh, Groton, Connecticut, which is where we have one of our nuclear submarine places. So, I got to play with nuclear subs for a little bit. And um, one of the requirements I had to, the sub had to earn was be able to onload and offload uh, naval special warfare soldiers in a certain amount of time for them for the submarine to earn their qual so they could do deployment and then actually utilize seals while they were deployed mm-hmm. and i think it was one of those like cool moments it's not like a you know random awesome but it's just like one of those like holy cow we get to play with some cool toys <laughs> and so we set off we're somewhere out cutting squares in the middle of the atlantic ocean and we were cruising around like 850 feet below the surface of the water. Eventually, it was time for us to do our thing. As the sub came up, as soon as the periscope broke the surface of the water, the time began. My, my uh, squad, uh, my group of SEALs, was uh, to take small, small or like uh, little F-470 Zodiacs, the rubber crafts that we have, take those, hoist them up to four stories through to the top deck, put them on the, uh, put them on the back of the sub, inflate them with air, put, up, uh, put the edges on the back, and then launch them and the submarine go back down within a certain amount of time. Jesus. Having, it, it was pretty cool. So we did that in the daytime, we did it in the nighttime. Where we're sitting there at night, and one of the things we had to work out was what's our communication systems, primary, secondary, and tertiary comms. And so uh, going through it all, we made sure that they all worked and we were all set to go with it. So at night, we're sitting there waiting to get pecked up, and our, our boats were nose to butt all the way. We had uh, two of them. We're sitting there nose to tail, waiting, waiting. And well, as soon as we Launch. We took off, and then a couple minutes later, we came back, but the sun had disappeared. Well, the submarine underwater was turning back <laughs> around and come up to pick us up. So we're sitting there, and I'm looking, and we're holding our GPS, we're holding on station. I'm looking around the water, and like all of a sudden, like this underwater, some bioluminescence kicks up. So it looks like it looks like fireflies underwater, basically. <laughs> and I'm sitting there, like, huh? And then I'm looking around. And there's a lot more, and there's a lot more. And I'm thinking, what the hell just swam below us? Because that thing is. Did. And then all of a sudden I realized, well, maybe it's like a current, maybe that's something that just, because when they get, um, when they get uh, irritated or like bothered, then they kind of light up. Right. Next thing I know, there's this massive green carpet underneath our boats. And I realized, holy shit, the submarine is coming in right underneath <laughs> us right now. I get on the comms, I tell them like, get your motors up, get your motors up. And okay, you know, imagine this. Imagine you taking your hand under the surface of the water and you pushing up without breaking the water. Imagine that, that, mount, that, that mount of water, that water column you're pushing up underwater, right? Right. Now you've got a boat, now you've got a boat 100 yards long doing the same thing as it's coming up right underneath you. Oh, the no. sail of the, of the submarine broke the water right in front of us. I shit you not, I thought Atlantis was coming out of the water. 
like when this thing came up in front of us. It pushed up so much water that we got our boats out, of, we got our motors out of the water, and then we all spilled off to the side. It was like a uh, uh, whitewater rapids thing. It was probably one of the coolest things I've ever been a part of with like military equipment. Now, and it was just well, like it was awesome. It was cool, and it first scared the shit out of me with once I realized what was going on. It didn't want to damage the submarine. Of course, it's amazing the the power and the size of those things, huh? I tell you what, man, subs are impressive. The weakest part about a submarine is the humans. Those <laughs> things do not need us. Right. <laughs> no, you're right. That's a pretty cool story, man. Um, well, I guess we're coming to an end and I want to say that uh, I want to thank each and every one of you guys for being in this podcast. Uh, Dennis, uh, thanks a lot for... Um, for being in the podcast. I'm looking forward to uh, working with you in the future with Milrock. Um, you know, like we spoke here in Jerusalem, that would be really cool to uh, have something uh, going on together, maybe in Israel or in Sweden. Um, Jeff, it was a true uh, honor to have you here in the podcast too. Thanks for your time. And as always, I mean, It's great hearing from you and uh, having you here was a true privilege. Looking forward to seeing you again, man, on a go rock or something. Likewise, it's been a bit. I know, yeah, it's been a bit. Um, and uh, Eric, thanks a lot for uh, coming as well. And, um, you know, we go back a long time and uh, I'm uh, truly thankful that you showed up today. I think that our listeners got a really good uh, session and they heard a lot of good stuff about these units and about the, the mindset, the background, the life of a, of a naval commando or SEAL. And I, you know, in my opinion, this is one of the coolest units in all countries. I have a lot of respect for uh, SEALs and uh, naval commandos and I think it's, it's awesome. So thanks a lot, guys. Daniel, anything else you want to add? No, just uh, obviously thanks for thanks for you know being with us and uh, you know sharing the stories. Thank you for the opportunity. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me. Wow, oh. Th thanks a lot, guys. All right. <laughs>